A person that was physically abused when when they were a child can have the same intensity of PTSD as a soldier in wartime. It's just that the situation or the environment is different. Sometimes people will suffer from PTSD because they saw an accident or they saw a person get killed. I'm Greg Rennie. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome, listeners. Thanks for joining us on our podcast where we discuss mental health, physical health, all matters of the mind and body. And here's my producer, Rob. Hey, Rob. Hey, Greg. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. I'm doing well. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, me as yeah. well. And here we are, another episode of Mind Body Matters. And hang on. You're getting very, very sleepy. Very, very sleepy. Now, I say that because um, that's a form of hypnosis. Yeah, as we know it, yeah, right? Yeah. But oh, I, I, I agree. I agree that I'm sure everyone, once they heard that, they were realizing, oh, you know, like movies. You Remember know, that's, that? Yeah. That's, yeah. You're getting very, very sleepy. Yeah. And um, what comes to mind when uh, I think of hypnosis is uh, the movies where they have the watch, you know. Going back, back and, and forth, forth like yeah, a pendulum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it, you know, I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm interested in, in finding out more when I talk with uh, our guests, but I don't really think that they go into a, a trance. Like, what do you think? I think they go into a, a, a maybe more of a, a subconscious mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah uh, I don't think it's a trance per se, but I think it, it's a state. Let's call it a state. But that's my uh-huh. that's my knowledge. I'm actually looking forward to uh, our guest today to find out more. Now, you are a psychotherapist, correct? Right, right. Psychotherapist, therapist, okay. yeah. Uh-huh. And and this gentleman who we're going to interview today, he's a hypnotherapist. So there's right. a big difference. Yeah, there is. There is. And, you know, I got to admit right off the start, I don't know very much about hypnosis or uh, hypnotherapy. And so I'm kind of going in, not really knowing much, but also I, I got to say a little bit of a skeptic. So I, I'm I'm quite excited about interviewing this guy. But also I was thinking about a number of months ago, you and I were, I think that's the reason why we got on this topic is that you and I were discussing this guy in Vegas that you saw or yes. met, Anthony Cools, and he's a professional, I think they call him like an uncensored uh, stage hypnotist. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very much uncensored. Okay. But yeah, uh, yeah. he's, uh, if, if my memory serves me correct, he's from out west in Canada. I believe he uh, is from Calgary, and he did sort of like a residency in Vegas. Now, I had the opportunity to see him several times in Montreal back in the 90s. And then uh, in the early 2000s, a buddy of mine went to Vegas together and we saw him again. And this guy is just hilarious. And he basically takes people who have the ability to be hypnotized. That's interesting. And he, and he has them doing really strange things on stage. And uh, I really enjoyed his act. And, uh, and again, his name is Anthony Cools. And I still believe that he is in the Vegas area. So if you ever get a chance to to check it out. I would highly recommend if you're into some crazy fun, as I am. You were saying that people that can be uh, hypnotized, uh, um, like, or, like, are you the type of person that would go on stage with someone like him and allow him to? No. Why? No. Why? I, I, I'm there more for the entertainment value. However, that seemed to be the question. When, when I went to see this guy in Montreal, uh, I would talk to my friends. Are you going to get up on stage? And they went, yeah, I might do that. 
And they go, you Rob? I went, no, not on your life because <laughs> this guy is really crazy. Like this guy will make you do some of the weirdest things. And that's that's the whole entertainment value behind his show is because the audience watches a group of, say, 12 to maybe 15 people doing the most asinine things on stage. Mm-hmm. And I mean really crazy stuff. So No, I saw the videos, yeah. <laughs> Pretty crazy. But yeah. Uh, Anyway, this gentleman today is also uh, from Montreal. Yeah, uh, his name is Pierre Benoit. Isn't that a great name? Pierre Benoit. Yeah. But, uh, very French. Very French. Quebecois. And, and, and he speaks fluent English and he speaks fluent French. Yes, a rarity where a, a therapist is able to, to uh, speak both English and French. But mm-hmm. uh, I've known him for uh, um, a little while. Like I said, I don't know very much about the work that he does, but I know that he's been a therapist for like over 40 years. In his field of hypnotherapy, he's a leading expert, right? And he specializes in treating military veterans uh, who have PTSD. And a a lot of the episodes uh, recently, you know, touch on post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, it's something that that you and I have, have chatted about. This guy really is a leading expert on how hypnosis can help. Uh, someone with uh, with PTSD. We had one psychiatrist that came in and talked about the use of psychedelics, but this guy, he <laughs> he uses hypnosis to uh, to treat, and yep. he actually wrote a book. Always cool to have people on the show that that have a book. And I read this PTSD and hypnosis: a bulletproof vest for the mind. Wow, that's a great yeah. title. The Bulletproof Vest for the Mind. Yeah, you can see where, you know, he, he specializes and, and works a lot with uh, military veterans. And an interesting thing is is that his uh, co-author, uh, Sarah Yun Gilead, she spent two years in Afghanistan as a media consultant to the commander of British forces in Helmand Province. Mm-hmm. And get this, uh, she was a consultant to NATO in oh. Afghanistan. So he co-wrote the book with, uh, with someone that um, has had a lot of uh, personal experience. I'm looking forward to it. He's a member, director of education, and board member of the Association of Registered Clinical Hypnotherapists. That's their college. Like, these guys are registered. I mean, they're just, you know, no one can come out and say, hey, you know, I'm a hypnotherapist. These guys are, are registered and, and regulated. And you doing the production on this after we're done, I'm interested to know uh, your take on all this. Will do. And um, so we'll, uh, we'll have that chat after this interview. So here's my conversation with hypnotherapist Pierre Benoit. Pierre, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I know we're not going to get to all of the questions that I have, but specifically love to hear more about your work with people who have trauma and PTSD. Yes. Uh, basically, pretty well 98% of my clientele right now is with regards to anxiety and, and trauma and PTSD, especially since the um, the pandemic. And, and it's funny because the people that were scared or had phobias, they they felt great during the pandemic. But now that the pandemic's down, now, you know, it's, the, the fear comes back out again. Not right. like aftershocks of, of those two years in the lockdown, eh? Yeah, definitely. And especially in the first year, you know, that everybody was really scared about things. It's like people were dying. It, it it wasn't warlike, but it was like something that we couldn't control. And people that were inse- already insecure, well, it just increased their insecurity like a thousandfold because 
now they, they had something real that could kill them and they had no control because there wasn't even a vaccine for it. You know, it just increased their anxiety levels to uh, major levels. Over the pandemic, I mean, that affected us in so many different ways, you know, our emotional health and our physical health. And as I mentioned, the, the podcast is uh, very much focused on the mind-body connection. What does the mind-body connection mean to you? It could be, I, I could kind of put it in one sentence, like whatever the psychological can't handle gets thrown into the biology. Because for the mind, it's easier to deal with a physical hurt than a psychological one. So a lot of times there's going to be a lot of symptoms coming out that don't have necessarily a, a apparent cause. But when you kind of dig, you find out it's, it's just a result of a situation or an emotional situation that wasn't able to be resolved and got just stuck there. And it just kind of gets thrown into the biology and it creates a whole bunch of somatic type of symptoms. Obviously, we're going to dive in depth about what hypnotherapy is, but in a in a nutshell, how does it improve our emotional and physical health, our, our mind and body? When I work with people, I deal with feelings. It's not about content or anything. It's really uh, all about emotions and feelings. So a lot of times by doing that, you, you get to uh, the causes a lot quicker. And it's not about knowing because I've had clients go into psychologists and so on like for years but they still come to to me and they they feel that there's something missing or they're still stuck there and they know everything about their problem they know that they're not responsible they whatever but there it's still there like I had a lady who was sexually and physically abused when she was younger she went to a psychologist for 8 years not every week, but, you know, on on time period of eight years. And then when she called me up, she was saying, it's like, uh, her problem was like, I know everything about the situation, but when I look in the mirror, I don't like the person I see. And basically, we just kind of worked maybe four or five sessions kind of thing, and we just evacuated whatever was there. I, I didn't ask her about what happened or anything. I didn't even know what, because I work with idiomotor responses, so I don't need content. What's idiomotor uh, responses? B basically, idiomotor responses, like yes, no answers, either with the fingers or the head. So they tell me when the job's done by nodding their head. or But it's always about feeling it. You know, she wrote back to me at a point in time, thanking me for my non-invasive approach. Interesting. And she said, now when I look in the mirror, I enjoy the person that I see. You mentioned um, psychology and psychologists. Uh, tell us a bit of your history, how you came to this. Why hypnotherapy? Why not psychology and become a psychologist? Okay, I kind of fell into it. And I, I started back in 77 as a child and family counselor. You know, I worked on the street. I worked, to, you know, in youth centers, psychiatric units, high security psychiatric units. But all along, I kept kind of reading and, you know, taking courses and so on. And then I kind of fell into the NLP, the Neuro Linguistic Programming course. So I took the course. And, and in that course, there was a section on hypnosis. And I, and I said, like, okay, so uh, this sounds cool. Because what I was learning was helping me help the kids that I worked with. And then I really enjoyed the hypnosis, so I decided to specialize in hypnosis. So I went to the States taking like medical hypnoanalysis and advanced hypnotherapy courses. 
And then I just decided, it's like, well, you know, this is where I want to go. So I kind of dropped the rest of the stuff and just decided to kind of go straight with that. When you fell into it, did you have any skepticism yourself, any doubts, or did you go in with an open mind? I, I was really open. It's because, like, especially when we had the first class, you know, it's like every time I take a class, I always kind of, when they ask for a volunteer, my hand just kind of goes up right away. I think I've, I'm, I've got this post-hypnotic suggestion that to Wendy says, <laughs> you know, it's like anybody who wants to volunteer, my hand just straight goes up. You know? <laughs> so I get to experience right everything that I've learned firsthand. So, uh, so I've always been kind of open to those types of things. And, and it just sounded great. It did great for me. You did it within the courses and that. Did you kind of work out something and, and see some uh, results? Oh, yeah. I, I, I had, like, I worked through uh, a, the arrest of depression, through different issues. I even have, I still do go, like, to see my hypnotherapist once a, once a month, once every two months. I believe as a therapist, and I've talked to the therapist about this, it's so important that we maintain our wellness so that we can help other people with their wellness. If we're not well, then it's pretty hard to help somebody else. So good for you. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes, you know, people don't come to see you because they're they're doing great. You know, they, they come with problems. And that's what you hear all week, all month, all year round, you know. So sometimes it can kind of sink into your own stuff. Not that you kind of take on their problems, but it's it's like... I need to have like a, a little kind of a cleanup once in a while, you know? When we talked uh, a few days ago, part of the intrigue was the history of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. And you said it goes back centuries. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Uh, see, hypnosis is not something that's new. But back in the days, you know, it's like if you talk about religion, any type of religious leader had this way of uh, bringing people in, into the what they were thinking about, you know, it's like... If you look at, um, in ancient Greece, they had what they call sleep temples, where people would go in and they would do some type of talking and, and chanting and all that, and people would just kind of sleep there. And and I don't know exactly how it worked, but, you know, they had that back then, you don't see. And it, it all came on. And then all the way, there's all kinds of stories. And anywhere that where people are absorbed into what they're doing or by somebody who's talking, you know, and, and kind of gets them into their own kind of deal. You know, I remember, you know, being young, you know, you go to church and you got the priest in front and he's got all the, this way of singing or, or saying things. And I remember watching older people were like in awe. So it's in the same way, it, it just kind of carried on. And then you got Mesmer. Franz Mesmer, yeah. 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 Hence the word being mesmerized. Absolutely. Actually, he wasn't a hypnotist per se. It, it, it was, he believed in animal magnetism. So he, he believed that everything had a certain energy that could help Curacao. And he became very famous, so, so famous that Marie Antoinette took him under her wing, his wing, her wing and he became, you know, the healer for the, the court and stuff like that until he got kind of disproved or something. Mesmer influenced a whole bunch of other people, including uh, James Braid, who was uh, a doctor in India, and he used mesmerism with people when, we, when he was operating and doing amputations in India. 
he was using that as an anesthesia because he didn't have anything else. And he had like a, a 95% survival rate for amputations. And back in, that, in those days, apparently it was quite exceptional. So when he came back to uh, England and he brought his, his findings, uh, they didn't, the medical community didn't really kind of t- took to it because they uh, discovered ether. And ether is faster than hypnos- hypnosis. Mm-hmm. And it was the way they were doing that back then. It kind of got lost, but he, he coined the phrase hypnosis, you know, because hypnosis means to sleep, you know, that's all it is. But it's not true because when people go into hypnosis, they're not sleeping. Their body is in a state like if it was asleep, but the mind is completely awake to do the work. Do they remember everything that's said and what they say? Yeah. Yeah. It's not an unconscious state, not like in the movies or anything, you know, they're aware they can get out of it anytime they want. Me, I'm like a guide. I guide them through the process of hypnosis. The client's job is to trust in the process and allow it to work for them. Reading about this, I couldn't help but come across some of, you know, the the myths about hypnosis. And one in the movies is the watch. So they have a watch and they move it back and forth. And then they say, you're getting very, very sleepy. But I understand that the true hypnosis, true hypnosis, you have them do eye movement of some kind, but you don't use a, an actual object like you see in the movies. Actually, the only reason they use object is for, to eye, for eye fixation. They just focus the person on an object. You can use some, well, in the movies, it's a lot easier for them to do that because they're shooting something. They have to show something when in fact, all you have to do is talk. And that's not all that appealing in a movie. You have to have a little bit of drama and have that watch going back. Well, yeah, you know, but, you know, it's like you can have the same thing by just having somebody look at, look up at uh, at the ceiling and just kind of stare at a point until you get eye fatigue. And then you use that as an induction. I've used with children, you know, with children, it's, it's great. You're using a pendulum kind of a, a thing, you know, it's like not a watch, but like uh, those pendulums. Yeah, I uh-huh. just tell them, you know, it's like, hey, you know, do you believe, I, I tell kids, do you believe that you can move objects with your mind? And they say, it's like, well, that can't happen. I say, well, let me show you. And then I get them to kind of hold it. And then I get them to think about, you know, moving back and forth, back and forth. And the thing starts going back and forth. And I get them to change the direction, go in a circle, go the other way. And, and I'm, I, I'm just holding their hands because I don't want them to kind of do anything. And I saw it's like, imagine, you know, look at what your mind can do with this object. Imagine how easy it's going to be. So it acts as a convincer, you know, it's like, you know, I don't use it with, with adults, though. It's just, but with kids, it's great. Mind Body Matters is brought to you by Audible and the hidden power of shadow work. Hi, listeners. I have something to share with you. I've read a lot of self-help books, but there's one book that I found really helpful for me personally, The Hidden Power of Shadow Work by Marcus Black. In the book, I found the part of ourselves that we'd rather forget is what's called your shadow self. I know it sounds ominous, but it isn't. By doing the shadow work exercises in this book, I learned how to understand and even embrace that part of myself. There's six activities and questions on how to discover identify, and get to know your shadow self. If you're ready to master your shadow and start healing from within, then get the paperback or Kindle edition of The Hidden Power of Shadow Work by Marcus Black. Go to Amazon.com. 
By the way, I like the book so much, I narrated the audiobook myself. True story. It's available on Audible from Google Play and the App Store. And now, back to the show. Can I go back into the history just a bit? When you and I were talking about this, you mentioned that you felt that Jesus was a hypnotist. Tell me more about that. Well, he had a charisma and a way of saying things and attracting people and saying the right things and using his voice, you know, you know, when he was making speeches and stuff. So he would kind of bring people together and they would believe him. That's a kind of hypnosis. It's the same thing as preachers today. You know, it's like some those in the States, you got preachers that can fill a whole stadium, you know, and, and people just kind of go wild with them. But it's like, it's like he can handle the whole crowd so it's kind of a stage hypnosis type, but it's not necessarily something that's absolutely conscious. It's just like people call it charisma or whatever it is. If you kind of watch them, how they say things and how they work their the stage and so on, well, you can see, you know, it's like a stage hypnotist kind of thing. And, you know, it's like with religion too, It's, it's a lot of it is, you know, has to do with faith. They have faith in what the person, that's why, you know, the placebo effect works. Back in the days, uh, there was this uh, Christian priest called Abbe Faria. Uh, he had this thing where apparently he healed thousands of people, and he had, he'd get them to kind of come in through like a tunnel and all that, stuff, and they'd get into a room, and he had the stage made up so that he already he was a very tall man, apparently, and yeah, but I, he had the stage made up so that he, he looked even taller, and he had this huge cross, and and there was this old setup, and then they'd come to the and they come to the person. The person would come in and so on, and you go heal, you know, kind of kind of scared the scared the the symptoms out of the people, yeah. <laughs> but it was like really, you know, and it worked for him. They don't say how many people got heart attacks from it, but you know, it's like. But apparently, you know, it's like he was doing that, and he was actually healing some people. So. It's a kind of, again, it's a kind of hypnosis. It's all about faith. It's all about if people don't believe in hypnosis, well, they won't call the hypnotherapist. And if they do, well, a good hypnotherapist should check what their belief system is because, you know, it's like you don't want, I I, I don't want to waste people's time or my time. Reading your book, PTSD and Hypnosis, the rest of the title, I believe, is A Bulletproof Vest for Your Mind? For the mind, yeah. In the book... You mentioned there is no magic or sorcery to it, meaning hypnotherapy. It's simply a matter of energy. Can you expand on that? It, it, it's about where people focus. You know, where I focus my mind, I'm using ener- in, in a way energy to create or to destroy. When I say destroy, it's like people will not destroy things because they want to. But they, they might destroy their feelings and stuff because of, of where they are stuck. You know? So if we take like PTSD from a, for a soldier, and he's seen all of these things, he's killed people and so on. Imagine that, you know, it's like everybody's told not to kill anyone. But then again, they teach soldiers to kill people. And then as long as they're in a peace area, it, it doesn't really affect them that much. But as soon as they get into a war zone, then there's a paradox in their minds. There's this belief that killing is wrong, and then there's this other reality that I need to kill or be killed. 
And then the mind will switch and it'll make it okay to kill to protect themselves. And then you take these guys out of a war zone, you bring them back home, back to where killing is wrong. But they come back with all these memories of having killed someone. or, And then the, the mind switches again. So they see themselves, they, they might blame themselves. They get survivor's guilt. They get, you know, it's like, uh, I've seen things that were so terrible. I've done things that were so terrible. Guilt. They get guilt-ridden and so on. So it creates a whole bunch of traumatic experiences within the mind. So they're, they're, it's like they're stuck between two worlds. And that's just one way of seeing this. There's different, you know, it's like it, it varies from case to case. But, you know, it's like there's always this battle inside. In the same way where they, they made this experiment, you know, where they kind of gave these uh, this person glasses so that they, when they looked, they would see things upside down. And within a week, the mind fixed it so everything was upside, like right side up. And then they took the glasses off and then they'd see upside down until the mind readjusted so that they'd see regular again. So you see, so the mind is will create, will adapt, but will also get stuck. And sometimes the, because of the intensity of the emotion that was there, or lack of, you know, it's like when they say that people, you know, with PTSD, they have a lack of emotion or they're cut off. Well, yeah, that's a, a defense mechanism that they have so that they don't go crazy. Mm -hmm, a bit of a mask. Yeah. But then they get stuck with that, stuck with the feelings, but the feelings need to come out anyways. You can't keep them bottled in forever. So it comes out with like in nightmares, comes out in aggressiveness or all kinds of, you know, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and so on. How would, for the listener, how would you define a traumatic experience? Now, you're mentioning about the military and a soldier's experience. Is there anything different from the experience itself as someone in the military in Afghanistan versus someone that has had a trauma in their life in the past? It's, it's the same kind of deal. It's just a, the, the situation is different, right? Because... A person that was physically abused when when they were a child can have the same intensity of PTSD as a soldier in wartime because the intensity of the emotion at the time is very strong. It's just that the situation or the environment is different. And PTSD is not just necessarily what happens to a person. Sometimes people will suffer from PTSD because they saw an accident or they saw a person get killed or they saw, you know, it's something that they weren't in but they were witness to. And that's still considered traumatic. Yeah. So it's it doesn't have to be like a wartime type of thing. It's whatever event that will create a very inti high intensity negative impact on a person can be considered as traumatic. In your book, PTSD and Hypnosis, it, it baffles me. Apparently the military defines PTSD, and I'll quote here from your book, a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Mm -hmm. Why would they state it like that? War is not normal. So the mind and the body reacts to create, to protect the person. So it's a normal reaction to protect its, ourselves in what we call an abnormal situation. You know, it's like if you're, if you're in an area where, you know, it's like it's high security or, you know, it's like just look at EMTs, right? They see all kinds of stuff. They're in witness. They're, they, they, they'll put their hands in the blood too. You know, So it's not a normal situation. 
but the reaction is normal because it's a, a protection mechanism. But it's not a protection mechanism that's there to stay for life. It's punctual. It's situational. has a purpose at the time. Absolutely. That's interesting now that you explain it more, because when I first read it, I guess I misunderstood because I found it dismissing of what PTSD. They're saying it's a normal reaction to an abnormal event. That's all it is. But the way that you're explaining it, I'm understanding a little bit more. So it is a true statement. Yes, uh, it is. How the military sees it. Absolutely. What, um, uh, let's talk about the, the neurobiology and uh, the brain. Tell me about what happens to the brain because of a traumatic experience. Basically, the brain will create neural pathways uh, using our experiences. Okay, so it learns. It always learns. So if I'm in a traumatic situation, well, it will create some neural pathways. And then what's going to happen is every time a situation appears to be that way, it will react as if it's the old situation and will add on to that. It's like creating, you know, when, when you go on a road, like on a dirt road, and you go there often, it creates those little dips. Well, it's the same thing in the, in the brain. The neural pathway that's created becomes stronger. Okay, just to give you an example, you got this child in elementary school. His friends throw, you know, kind of put him in his locker and close the door. He stays there for about five minutes or so, but to him, it feels like a half hour. So they finally let him out. And the mind, in order for him not to go through that experience again, will create a fear of being enclosed in a locker. So that will create a neural pathway. Then every time he comes back to his locker, he stays, like he stops a little far back, check who's around, you know, then kind of comes in closer when, it's, when he feels safe and doesn't stay in front of his locker. You, you might be at an angle, so it's not, e for, it's not easy for people to push him in. So all these little adaptive behavior it support or even increase this neural pathway. Maybe even re reinforce it. Absolutely. That's mm -hmm. the word I was looking for. <laughs> Must be mm -hmm. the French coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. But then this continues because the mind generalizes information. So this locker will become like a bathroom without windows, uh, can't sit in the back of a car, you know, when, like a two-door car. Uh, anything similar. Anything that's similar because it will generalize to other situations that resembles because the mind works through association. And then you got this guy, gets up, he's like 25, finds a, a job on the 25th floor of a building. Well, you know, can't take the elevator, so you must be in good shape or he needs to kind of get up early to get to work on time. So it becomes a phobia. And that's where hypnotherapy comes in to address that phobia because anything that's similar, the brain appears to react the same way. And would you, would you consider that uh, a trigger or activation of parts of the brain? How would you describe it? Well, I find activation and trigger are kind of synonyms to a point because it's like pressing on the button and, and, and the connections right away. Right. So it's like turning on a light, you know, you flip the switch, but the light turns on right away. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it, it really kind of goes that way. But the initial sensitizing event, which was being thrown in the locker, is not there anymore. So that behavior does not need to be there anymore. But it ne the email never got to the, <laughs> to the brain right, right. to kind of cancel out that part. 
So that's why, you know, it's like with hypnosis, we can cut those emotional ties to the original event and undo what's been done. How do you address that someone is being uh, triggered or activated by similar events? Do you bring them back to that original event or give us some more specifics on, on how you do your work for something like that? Well, when dealing with traumatic events like, uh, you know, PTSD or very high anxiety type of events, uh, you don't, I, we don't want to, we don't want to bring them back in the event. We want to bring them to where they could watch the event at a, at a safe distance because you don't want to re-traumatize the client. Uh, I'll use what we call either a dissociation or a double dissociation technique. For example, uh, a dissociation technique would be the person sitting in the theater watching on, on the screen what's happening. So he can see what's happening, but he won't feel it. Right? Just observing. So, that's right. And when we talk about double dissociation, well, I would take the same person in the in the theater watching, but I'd also separate him into the projection booth so that he can watch himself watch the screen. So we help to desensitize the event and then reframe the event so that the emotional tie is not there anymore to that event. It becomes like just like a memory in a library, in a bookcase. Your mind is like that, you know, it's, it's like you've got this bookcase and all your memories are like books. And when you have to remember something, you just kind of take out the book, you use the information. But once you, when you're done, you just put back the book there and you don't think about it anymore. So that's basically that's what we do. We just help them just kind of put the book back without leaving it open. Mind Body Matters is brought to you by Pivot Design Group. Whether using an app, scrolling through a website, or looking at a logo, for many, design is a mystery. Who and how decided that something should work or look like that? Pivot Design Group takes the mystery out of design. Specializing in healthcare, Pivot uses a unique process called informed design. This insightful and data-based framework informs every design decision to create effective and sustainable experiences and services. To learn more, visit www.pivot.design. And now, back to the show. If I was a soldier and I witnessed uh, someone close to me die in combat, uh, and it makes perfect sense to me, and I'm sure to the listener on the process of of taking them out of the direct observation. But if someone has experienced a, a traumatic event like that, how do you reframe it? You said that you reframe the event. How would you reframe someone's event where they they saw their very close friend die? Well, what we're reframing. See, the the thing is, it's not the event; it's the feeling of that person of the event. Because we can't change the history of a person, but we can help them change their perspective of that history so that it doesn't affect them today. It doesn't mean that he won't be sad, you know, about losing his friend, but he might not need to to carry on with the survivor's guilt, for example. So there will still be an emotional connection because he was a friend and he died and I was with him, but I will not feel a survivor's guilt anymore. So it becomes like a normal memory that will create a feeling, but that will not affect him today. Would you would you say that 
with this reframing and them not having the direct emotion around it would help them also physically because there's that phrase of the body always remembers. So do they have less impact physically, not just emotionally? Absolutely. You know, because a lot of times, you know, it's like survivor's guilt can be, uh, you know, it's like people will, uh, you know, it's like will drink, will use drugs to kind of forget the, the guilt that they're feeling instead of just facing it. But the guilt, you know, is unnecessary. You you don't have to be guilty about surviving an event, but it's your perception that creates that guilt. You know, you know the phrase, if I knew then what I know now, things that would have been different. Oh yeah, every day. <laughs> well, see, that that's what we do in hypnosis. We help people know, we bring today's knowledge to yesterday so that yesterday's emotions don't affect the person's in the present. Using your book, I like to actually dive into the actual techniques. Uh, in the book, one of the techniques is called direct suggestions. And this brings me to um, a question my producer, Rob, was curious about. We were talking earlier on before you came into the studio that in Las Vegas, he saw a guy named Anthony Cools. I'm not sure if you are aware of this guy at all. No. Stage hypnosis. Okay. Uh, and some of the things to get people to do, I can't, I don't even want to mention on my podcast, but I can tell you that what happens is that somehow they do something to the, uh, the audience member on stage to get them to forget their name or to uh, play an imaginary instrument. How does that happen? How does he do that? Well, the first thing you got to understand that there's two types of people going to see those shows. There's the people that want to be part of the show. And there's the people that want to see the people that want to be part of the show. The second group rarely gets on stage. That would be me. Because what happens is people do the hypnosis part on their own, right? Because, see, for example, you got this guy come into town, you know, so he's got these ads and so on. And the people hear about him. It's like, oh, man, you know, there's a stage hypnosis coming to town. It's just cool. I've heard about, you know, apparently it's fun. So people start talking. And that creates energy. And then they buy the, their ticket. So that's more energy. And then as the date gets closer, they can't stop thinking about it and so on. So you put like 500 people in one room feeling like that. All the stage hypnotist has to do is go sleep. And you can hypnotize 1% to 2% of those people just by doing that because people expect that. Yeah, it's called positive expectancy. But that's not what he does. He does some suggestibility tests, like the, the hands that are glued together and so on. And then you get some people to get up stage. So all the people that our hands are glued together come on over. And then he, he keeps on going. And, he, and he'll kind of, th- you know, go, send people, some people back. And he will only keep the people that are more suggestible or open to his suggestion because the guy's got a show to put on. He's not going to take people that will resist, right? How does he know that they have that expectation that that's a prime candidate? Well, because how they respond to this to the uh, suggestibility exercises. I like to uh, come back to this whole thing about subconscious because um, as a therapist, when I when I did my training, there's different types of therapy, uh, different types of uh, of modalities, but psychoanalysis was something that that we discussed. Freud. Um, I feel that like this is uh, hypnotherapy is a little bit different, but uh, Explain for the audience, for someone that may not really understand, the difference between when you say subconscious versus our conscious. 
if we take the image of a boat and a captain, you know, they say that the conscious, we use 5% of our brain, 5 to 10% of our brain, and the other 90% is potential kind of thing. Well, it's, it's kind of the same way. You know, if you think about the conscious and the subconscious, the subconscious would be the boat, and the conscious mind is the captain. And the subconscious mind needs direction to do something. It, it, it needs instructions from somewhere. It, so if a boat doesn't have a captain, it just doesn't go anywhere. And if a captain doesn't have a boat, well, he's not a captain, right? So the conscious mind and the subconscious, they're not two different identities. They need each other to exist. So the captain provides the instructions to the boat. The captain doesn't have to think about, you know, kind of turning a wheel here and turning a wheel there. All he's got to do is, you know, guide the boat and that's it. The rest is done by the subconscious. So in the same way, when you walk, you don't have to think about your balance or there's no calculation. It just happens. So, but because the, the conscious mind decides to go to a, play, to a point and the subconscious mind says, okay, body, this is how you do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And it makes me think about um, sometimes when I'm driving from point A to point B, and I get to point B two hours later and I'm going, what the hell just happened? I don't remember the drive. I don't remember taking that exit. Is that something similar that's happening yes, there? Yes, that's what we call a natural state of hypnosis. It's like your conscious mind is preoccupied with thoughts or in conversation. So the subconscious mind takes on the automatic gestures, which is a driving. But if a car stops in front of you, it kind of jolts you back in, right? So that's a protective part of the subconscious, bringing back the conscious mind to take care of things. So, But people go in and out of hypnosis all day long. They just don't call it that. Hypnosis is like a state of absorption. Is I'm absorbed by what I'm doing. For example, when you're when you're at work and you're really busy, time flies. But a second is a second. But you can feel it like a long second or a short second. When in reality, a second is a second. In the same way, you read a good book, right? You say, okay, I'm going to stop at the next page. But you keep flipping pages because you're so absorbed by the story. That's another state of absorption. You know, it's another natural state of hypnosis. People go in and out all the time. You know, have you ever you know, been to the fridge looking for something and then you can't find it and you go to your wife's like, hey, where is it? And then it says, it's in the door. And then you open the door again and it's right there. So the first part is what we call a negative hallucination, not seeing something that's there, which is also an hypnotic effect. So now I can tell my wife I'm just not stupid. I was was in hypnosis at the time. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, other techniques, age regression. This sounds really interesting. I don't know anything about it. I know in the book, uh, you also mentioned affect bridge regression too. So tell us a bit about age regression. Do, do you bring the person back to when they were a kid or how, how does that work? Yes. Uh, the way I work is, uh, like I say, I work with emotions. And when we talked about an affect bridge is we follow the emotion to where it originally started. Right, so when we talk about an affect bridge, I'll say something to the effect of, "Well, there's, you know, there's a feeling inside of you that has everything to do with why you're here today." When I count down to three, by the time I get three, I'll snap my fingers, and your subconscious mind will take you to the very first time that you felt that way. One, two, three. You know, so it it can be as simple as that. Does it have to be a true memory? Not necessarily, because it's the feeling that's important. So whatever the subconscious mind provides you with is the exact thing that you need to do to work on 
because of that of the feeling that you followed. So am I right that that if the person's memory may not be that accurate and their perception of the event might not be accurate, that doesn't matter then because the way that you work is based on the emotion, not the truth of the event. Absolutely. When you think back about a memory, it's not it's it, it'll never be tr- the true memory because it's affected by all your life experiences and your filters and so on. But when we do what we call an age regression, basically we're kind of going back to a time where things happened and we're reframing by allowing the adult you give the information to the young you so that they can go through the the situation without carrying any emotional baggage to today. You know, it's, it's, it's like we said before, if I knew then what I know now, Things will be different. Well, that's what we're doing. We're providing the, today's knowledge to yesterday so that they can release whatever feelings or negative feelings that were attached to a situation. So if a listener's thinking, okay, I've talked to my parents about this. I, I've talked to friends about this experience and no one really believes me or they, they doubt it happened or doubt it happened a certain way. What I understand then with hypnotherapy, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if they believe that it happened, it happened, but you work on a different level than trying to find out exactly what mm-hmm. happened. See, I'm there to help them release the negative feeling so that feeling does not get woken up in today's present. See, it's, it's, it's in the same way that, you know, it's like a person is like a cup and you can fill a cup all the way to the rim. Because people will, there's some experiences that will just evaporate, but some kind of get stuck in there. Okay, so a cup is like a person. So they accumulate experiences that get stuck in there. And you can fill a cup all the way to the rim. But if you go drop by drop, it kind of bubbles up over the rim a bit. And then you have that famous drop that makes everything overflow. And that's when people, you know, they get that feeling, say, I don't know why I overreacted that way. It's, it's for a simple thing. It's because that drop woke up everything that resembled because... The, mind, the subconscious mind works by association. So you get a, an overreaction to a little something. But when it overflows, it doesn't empty the cup. It brings it back to the rim, and the drops keep coming. So you get overflows more often. So when we do age regressions or these some advanced protocols, what we do is we help people to empty the cup so that there's no more overflowing ah. for nothing. So when something, when a drop happens, well, they're going to get a reaction just for the drop, not for the rest of the thing. You mentioned earlier that you don't bring the person back to the event to relive the event, but there's uh, a technique I understand is called revivication. Yes, revivication. Um, what exactly is that? If it isn't bringing them back into the event, not as an observer, but as, you know, the, how they felt at the time and what they experienced at the time, then, then what is that technique about? Well, it, it's a technique that we don't use with any type of uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, major traumatic events. If I'm working with like uh, anxiety or, or stress-related issues, and or you know, it's like then you can bring them back in the situation, get them back before the situation, give them you know, give them you know, it's like the resources they need to go through the situation and so on. That's when you use it, but it's not a, a, that technique is not something that we want to use on a regular basis, like with major traumatic events. But it does exist, and I do use it, but not there. Okay, here's a big one. 
forgiveness of others. <laughs> I struggle with this. I'm sure your listeners struggle with this. Um, how is that a technique? How, how does that work? Okay, so forgiveness of others. See, when, when we talk, if we, we follow the hypnoanalysis protocol, we start with direct suggestion to kind of get the ball rolling. We get into age regression to reframe the situation so that we can cut some emotional ties. And then we get into forgiveness of others to deal with any type of anger or resentment that are, that's still there. So forgiveness of others is not something where, you know, it's like once the, the session is done, they call up the person, the what we call the offender, to say, it's like, okay, I forgave you. You know, it's like, that's not the way it works. Forgiveness of others is about something people do for themselves to regain power over their life instead of letting other people have power over them because of the anger and resentment so they can liberate themselves and free themselves from the past, which leads to forgiveness of self also. Because yes, I forgave others, but forgiveness of self deals with the emotions like guilt, shame. And, and we do forgiveness of self because in a way, we allowed these others to do that to us, even though it wasn't voluntary, but we, it's still, we still allowed it in a way, right? So I need to forgive myself because I felt that way or because I allowed things. So we, we change the shame and, and the guilt part of themselves into more of a protective part, because sometimes you accept something to be done to you because it's the, the least worst that could happen. So we, we deal with that also. What do clients uh, have an easier time with, forgiveness of others or forgiveness of self? How do you mean easier time? <laughs> easier time than, like, is it easier for them to go the process of, of forgiveness of others than forgiveness of self or the other way around? From, from experience, I don't think there's more that, like, one that's harder than the other or easier than the other. Uh, a lot of times they'll find themselves, there might be resistance with regards to forgiveness of others that we need to kind of work through. But when we do forgiveness of self, they're quite surprised at what comes up because they didn't expect that to be that way. It must be a very emotional moment for clients. A lot of clients will cry uh, and man, you know, it's like they'll sob. And so, but there's a very uh, emotional release when that happens. Ego state therapy. We talked a bit about this and it's also called parts therapy. This has to do with the family. Can you elaborate on that? It's about your internal family because it's not about others. So when we talk, see, parts therapy or ego state, we, we have different parts of us uh, that we use uh, all through the day, right? Uh, sometimes, you know, there's a part of me that's a, a father. There's a part of me that's a husband. There's a part of me that sometimes is a little uh, angry or... So we always have like, we have different parts of us within us that makes our whole personality. So sometimes some of these parts can be, become in conflict. You know, like, for example, you know, it's like, uh, I want to do this, but uh, I'm self-sabotaging. So that's kind of two parts uh, that we can work with. So we get the two parts to come out. We negotiate with them so that they can both work together to achieve whatever goal that the, the client has at the point. There's a creative part of us that finds the solutions. There's a strong part of us that kind of gives us our internal strength. There's 
parts that are rebels. You know, there's all kinds. There's all kinds of names that will come out. It depends what the person you know comes up with. When we do that, is it's a very it's like being at a, a negotiation table where we figure out okay, what's the positive intention of that part? Why is it doing this? And what's your positive intention? And, and so on. And, I'll, and and a lot of times, you'll, you'll, as we go along, you might have two conflicting parts that have the same goal. They're just not using the right way to do so. And and that's how we kind of help people kind of get more aligned with themselves. There are what we call complex in multiple traumas. Does hypnotherapy help with that? And how, how does it help those things? In the same way uh, that we use for the regular traumas and PTSD, it's just that it takes a little longer. And depending on how the person reacts and so on, because, you know, it's like you may have like just because you, you were traumatized by one thing, then it does. Then you, you get to be sensitive to other traumatic events. So you, it might kind of uh, compound itself through time. You get into complex PTSD because you deal with more symptoms than just one traumatic event type of thing. So it creates more symptoms. So you need to kind of readjust a whole bunch of things. But it, it, it's the same principle. When someone is finished the therapy, and I imagine uh, for some it's a repeated number of sessions, maybe before they, they get some um, results, but what does self-care come into play in ongoing support, but specifically what they have to do for self-care in this process? Well, I like to teach my clients self-hypnosis. So, uh, you know, I will teach them how, how to do self-hypnosis so that uh, they can kind of take good care of themselves, so they can use the technique for all kinds of stuff after. See, I, I tell my clients, I helped you over the big bump, giving you tools so that big bump will not come back. The nice thing about hypnotherapy is about 98% of the time, when you're done with something, it's done. It's not coming back. So for the guy that experienced the um, trauma in combat, that wouldn't take a number of sessions? You're able to help him overcome that with Oh, no, session? no, no, no. You know, I, I'm not a, I don't like to promote that one session thing because, you know, hypnotherapy is not magic. It's not a magic wand. It takes whatever number of sessions that it takes to get the job done. And when the job's done, then then they're past it then, is what I understand? Absolutely. Some will take six, seven sessions, others 10, 12, 20. It will vary. Again, you know, it's like if you, you're kind of coming in with complex PTSD and so on, then I, the more emotional ingrained the problem is usually the more session takes but i i say that but it's not always true because people will uh go at their own rhythm see because hypnoth- well the kind of hypnotherapy I'm, I, I practice is very client-centered so i follow my client i don't pull my client i'm there to help them achieve because one of the basic principles is everybody's got everything that they need to succeed my job is to reconnect them with that potential for success so that they get they can go back to their resources, dust them off, and get through and solve their problems or achieve their goals, whatever it may be. With the time remaining, let's talk about the impact of the pandemic. Uh, I'm not sure when the listener is listening to this podcast episode, but we're in, in 2023. Uh, we had two years of, um, of this pandemic and, and, and the lockdown. 
in the clients that you're seeing, what is the lasting effect that we're that you're seeing in people? Basically, a lot of anxiety. And anxiety is always about a possible future that's perceived as negative. Because the mind is always in the present and it believes everything that you put in. So when you develop a, a negative scenario, it will make you react as if it's actually happening. So people were are have been very focused on fear or what they don't want to see happen in the last two years. So when they're focused on that, they're always looking for something to prove that. For example, nowadays, you know, it's like if you go anywhere and somebody coughs, look how many people kind of turn their heads towards the cough, the person that cough, that's coughing, right? Right away, it's like, well, you should wear a mask. You know, it's like all kinds of little ideas, but all that reinforces the anxiety of people. And, and it kind of proves them right that they're at risk. They're not necessarily in danger anymore, but they're at risk. So it keeps them in, in some type of hyper-vigilance. So when they come to see me, I help them to kind of switch their minds to what they do want to see rather than what they don't want to see in their fears. Because people are allowed to live. It doesn't mean that they forget that it, it's a possibility, but it's just, it's just that their mind is not focused on that all the time. So it reduces the anxiety and the stress quite a bit. But yeah, people, you know, they've been, when you talk about a traumatic event, usually it's a, it's kind of a shorter period, very intense but the pandemic was like, like people had a very intense fear for like two years. Heck, you know, the people were had to stay in house. We, we experienced different levels of trauma, depending on how the person emotionally uh, responds to it and, and, and their perception of the fear and the danger. But when you have clients that talk about their fear and something that I can relate to is social anxiety, how does hypnosis help with something like that? Well, in the same way, uh, you know, when I have social anxiety, is because when I think of going out, I'm thinking about all the bad things that I that that might happen or uh, how uncomfortable I will be. But it, and and usually, if you do go out, well, most of the time it doesn't happen. But because you thought about it that way, it 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 made the chest kind of you know tense to get your 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 body all tensed up, and you know it's like you're gonna get all sweaty. You know, it's like all kinds of stuff. So when, you know, when in reality, there's no danger. You know? So we need to kind of help people bring them back into the reality and the here and now. Not Basically, they're in their, I help people being in control of their mind rather than their mind in control of them. Do you find uh, working with clients that we are now in a, uh, a mental health crisis very often in the media uh, that's mentioned? Do you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. And and the crisis is, is there's not enough therapists to, ha- to help the amount of people there is. Like, I, I think in the book at the time I wrote it, uh, there was like, I think 14,000 soldiers on a waiting list to see a, a therapist for PTSD. And in the meantime, they get, they, they get, they, they get provided with some um, pills or medication, which sometimes even are worse than the PTSD symptoms. You know, there's a lack of therapists and, and there's a lot of people needing help. The nice thing about hypnotherapy, it, it's something that people don't have to spend years at. It, it's, a, it, it's what we call like a short-term therapy. So even though you might go 22 sessions, well, you know, you might have to go 100 sessions with a regular psychologist kind of thing. But I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that 
there's a lot of hypnotherapists, very good ones, but it's important for people to kind of do their research. I've had many clients coming from other hypnotists or hypnotherapists that couldn't handle their stuff. They, 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 you know, sometimes they'll take a couple of weekends and they, they put their signs up, hypnotherapist kind of thing, but they're not equipped to deal with emotional situations or ab reactions. So they get an ab reaction in their, in their chair and it's like opening Pandora's box and letting the person out without closing it back. So I've had, you know, uh, over the years, I've seen a lot of clients coming to me and, I, and I'm glad they came to me because they didn't kind of lose their, you know, belief in, in hypnotherapy. But, and they came to me and I just finished a job for them. And you do this online. Yes. Right. I have clients all over the world. How, how does this work online? Because one would think that you'd have to be in front of the client for this to work. Well, I'm in front of a client when I'm on the Zoom call, right? Yeah. I guess so. And I, and they don't need, they don't. There is nothing lost with Absolutely them? not. Because the thing is, it's, uh, you know, I talk to them. I get them. I can see the signs and so on. Because even if they'd be in my office, they're still working with their eyes closed and they're just listening to me. The nice thing is, is that they don't need to, it's like this morning, you know, it's like I had a client, she, she's a doctor, she, just, she had just come out of surgery, so she was still in her scrubs at her office in the hospital. So it makes it easier for people to kind of, you know, so it's, it's the same thing as in person, I find, and it's as effective. That's great to hear um, that uh, because everything is online now, it's great to hear that hypnotherapy can be done effectively online. So a bit about your practice, if someone's listening to this and they want to know more about hypnosis and, and hypnotherapy, um, how, how do they contact you and what are some resources they can look into? Well, they can, uh, I can be reached at, on my website at hypnotherapy, uh, www.hypnotherapymontreal, one word, dot com, friend slash big, uh, like E-N, because I, that's the English part of the, the site, because I work in French and English. Uh, and they can go there, and they, all my contact information is there, and you know my or by email at hypnoaid, a i d e. So when we're hypnoaid, a i d e at gmail dot com. So th- those are the best two ways to to reach me. Uh, on my site, they can even get. Uh, I, I provide a, a free fifteen minute discovery call that they can schedule straight on my site, so they can find out if this can be a good approach for them or not. What you mentioned here, the the website and, and that information, I'll put into the description of the episode for them to just to click on the link there. But I appreciate uh, that information. Any other resources uh, or organizations that uh, they could look up on Google that would help them learn more about hypnotherapy? Well, there uh, there's the Association of Registered Clinical Hypnotherapists of Canada. Uh, it's a very good site. Lots of information. Uh, it's it's professional and and it's. Like, of course, I am part of the, the organization because I'm a member, but the uh, their training is, is very good, and every member had to go through this, the, the training. And it's over a year, over a year, and it's like over a thousand hours for the first year, and then, you know, they can have access to the second year. So they, they're very well trained. There's, you know, they can find resources there. They can find uh, good therapists. I like to promote Canadian what can I say? I am Canadian. We have very good <laughs> clinical hypnotherapists in Canada. And it's, you know, there's also uh, the Canadian Hypnosis Conference that people can uh, attend in, uh, usually in October. 
Uh, that's in Toronto. I'm a regular presenter over there also because I've been there, going there for years. So there's a few. It's kind of easy to find a whole bunch of uh, of information. But what I'd like the listeners to know is that if they choose a to go to a hypnotherapist, don't don't be scared scared to ask questions. You know, ask about their training. You know, it's like it's not everybody that can do everything. So and make sure that they feel comfortable. You know, so that, that's important. Ask questions. Make sure you feel comfortable, and then you decide. I really gained a lot from reading your book. So uh, the book, once again, is called PTSD and Hypnosis, A Bulletproof Vest for the Mind. Where can the listeners find your book? Uh, you can find the book as a uh, paperback or ebook at a- Amazon. Right now I'm kind of looking at uh, uh, a book. Uh, I'm almost done with that one. It, it, and it's it's about you know choosing a hypnotherapist and what hypnotherapy is and so on. It's in the works, almost done. Well, when you're finished with the book and it's published, please provide me a, a copy for me to read, and then we can have you come back on the show and we can talk about that book, because I do believe that most of our listeners uh, need to know more information, and uh, a book like that would be very helpful. This discussion was very, very helpful. As a therapist, you you um, you helped me understand the differences between psychotherapy and hypnotherapy, and you you did a lot of myth-busting, so I really appreciate that, and I'm sure the listeners uh, have gained a lot from understanding what it is and what it isn't. Well, thank you for inviting me on your your podcast. It's been very pleasurable. Thanks very, very much for being here. All right, you too. Very, very good. Uh, Pierre Benoit, hypnotherapist. Yeah, yeah, that was um, actually a lot different than I thought it was going to be because, like I said, going in, I was a little bit of a skeptic, and coming out, I get it, I understand it. You're, you're um, getting it, and yeah. I, and and I noticed, um, I think you were a little hesitant about uh, hypnotherapy in the, because you're a psychotherapist, right? Yeah, and- I, I think that's part of it. Um, that you know what I'm trained in is much different than how he addresses, but him, like when he explained it, I got it. What I was a little curious about, and I think I did ask him is that, so like, do you bring them, we're talking about when he was, when he's treating PTSD, does Mm -hmm. he bring them back to the event? Because I know from training that, uh, that is extremely dangerous to bring the person back because they can get easily activated or triggered. So so there are parallels between psychotherapy and hypnotherapy then. Yeah, like, there are parallels. So, it's just that yeah. the way that we treat PTSD is different. And, you know, he did enlighten me as to here's yet another way. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we talked with the psychiatrist who uses uh, psychedelics. Pierre uses hypnosis. And really, I feel that any, uh, any way to help military veterans or anybody. Or anybody, yeah. 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 I think where it was difficult for me, and I asked him about it, is this whole thing of observing. Yes. So he agrees that we don't bring uh, the person back to the event or, like, back to combat. Um, You help them observe. Yeah. And what we call dissociate. Yeah. So it's in a dissociation. There's, like, they're they're not emotionally connected. They're not going to get emotionally uh, activated and, uh, and triggered by the event because he puts them in an observational point of view. Yes, I, I gathered that. Uh, 
one of my takeaways, and I'm hearing this, it's becoming a common theme here, Greg, on the show, but uh, the world right now, uh, the world Mm -hmm. is filled with anxiety. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, We are in, you had mentioned uh, when you were talking to Pierre there, that uh, it is a, we're in a crisis state right now. We really, we really are. It's a, I, Every time I, I I turn my head, I'm 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 a witness to what's going on in the world, and I feel it in myself. You had mentioned in the interview that uh, you have problems with anxiety as well. Oh, for yeah. sure, for sure. And, and what's interesting, he was mentioning how the, the amount of anxiety and fear yes. that we've had since the lockdown. Now, fear and fear, uh, false mm-hmm. evidence appearing real. Yeah, yeah. And also, what what occurred to me um, is that. Uh, fear can lead to phobia that like that. I knew a bit about that hypnosis uh, works for, for phobias, but he talked about, you know, uh, addressing phobias and he feels that we've, we may have a bit of a, um, a phobia or intense fear since the lockdown. And I, I, I'm, and I was thinking, yeah, I I think I do have a bit of a phobia. I mean, anytime I'm in public, Mm. um, and too close to people. Okay. Let's break. You just recently saw blue rodeo in Toronto. Right, and, and you, right. Large crowd. And you were telling yeah. me about how how you were feeling while watching that uh, that concert. Like years ago, you didn't mind being around a lot of people. Never thought about being that close, sitting side by side with somebody. But but now, yeah. Did I have anxiety? Yeah. Uh, was it fear? Mm, I don't know if it was actually fear, but I I was I was well aware that I'm very close to people here. This is very unusual, right? And so then I, I think that what could develop is, is a phobia of going out and being around people, being around well, crowds. Let's, because, let's face it, for know? two years, my friend, uh, we, mm-hmm. we were locked indoors and we didn't have the chance to get out. And and this is what we were being taught for over two years is during lockdown. Then all of a sudden the gates open up and it's, it, right. it's go out, do whatever you want. It's like, well, this doesn't feel right, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that he's done a lot of work with people that still have uh, a lot of fear and anxiety uh, from the, uh, you know, from the lockdown. Uh, it's interesting how a lot of these episodes we're talking about PTSD, and I'm I'm really glad that that topic is coming up um, because coming and, up on the uh, on the podcast here, right? Is uh, I'm looking forward to this one because it's it's dear to my heart too. Because as I mentioned, uh, my father. Uh, he has p- since passed, but uh, he was a World War II veteran. And uh, and not that he had many stories about stuff that happened in the war. He had a few, but th- there is definitely some PTSD happening there. Was he ever diagnosed? No, no. But, but, but looking back on it, you feel that your father may have had that? Looking back and just the way I was raised, and, uh, and I'm not saying my father was an angry man, but occasionally he would, uh, uh, you know, lash out. And I go, where is that coming from? And I'm just thinking it was uh, some of his upbringing. Mm-hmm. But uh, getting back to what I was going to say, we've got a guest coming up on the show who's a, uh, uh, not a World War II veteran, but a Vietnam uh, veteran. Yeah, he did two tours of Vietnam. And that's coming up uh, in one of our future shows. I uh-huh. believe uh, perhaps our, our next podcast, if I'm... It could very well be, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that uh, depending on, on our scheduling, um, he's in uh, in Alabama. And so if we can kind of coordinate uh, for... And I want you involved in this one. I mean, I think listeners might be getting sick of hearing me interview people, but I... I <laughs> 
I want I want you involved in this uh, because I mean you're my co-host, not just the producer, but also I like to hear your um, take on a military experience because of your yeah. your father. You you shared some things with me. I'd like to share some experiences about my grandfather, who was. Uh, a World War II uh, veteran. Yes. Don't know if he had PTSD, but I think the common thread here is that a lot of these guys that came back may have had post-traumatic stress from the war, but commonly they didn't talk about it. I bet your father didn't openly talk about no, it. No, you're right. I would. I remember later in life, I made it uh, my mission to find out more, and I actually sat down on camera and interviewed my father about the war. Right, I watched those. It wasn't something that uh, around the dinner table we would always talk about it. It wasn't something like that. Mm -hmm. You'd have to to dig to get it out of my father. Yeah. Watching some, uh, like doing a bit of research already for the interview with uh, Steve Cox, the uh, the Vietnam veteran, um, that it was up until Vietnam where they didn't quite understand what post-traumatic stress disorder was, and it was Vietnam mm-hmm. and the amount of vets that came back that eventually they did put it in uh, uh, into the uh, uh, diagnostic manuals for psychiatrists as a as a as a true disorder, um, mm-hmm. and and now they're they're talking about rewording it, and uh, we'll talk more about that about post-traumatic stress injury, right? So this is a really fascinating uh, topic, and I'm glad that Pierre shared his experience about how he treats it. And it sounds like he's very successful with it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking more about this subject as we go along. Well, wrapping up here, uh, thanks to our listeners who are Patreon backers. If you would like to help us out, it's a couple bucks a month to keep the podcast going, Rob, right? Just a couple of bucks a month. It's it's a mere coffee. Yes. Yeah. For the cost of a coffee, you can help coffee. us uh, keep this going. Uh, and also, you know, when, when you're a Patreon member too, we, you know, there, there's, there's benefits, perks, right? We, perks. we give you perks. We give you, we give you something for the few bucks a month and we, uh, provide you the opportunity to see and listen to our podcast, uh, prior to, uh, when we post it. And I say watch because we, we do now have the podcast on YouTube. Um, but thank God they're not looking at our old faces. No, ex- exactly. It's... <laughs> As I used to, I used to say, we don't want to scare the children. No, I, you know, I, I, the people used to say, "Oh, geez, Reef, you got a face built for radio." And I go, "Yes, radio is <laughs> such a visual medium, isn't it?" But uh, anyway, here we are. Another thing too, if people want to get a hold of us and maybe suggest some ideas for some, for some upcoming shows, how would they, right. how would they go about doing that? Go to the website, okay, right, mb matters dot com, and 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 just click on contact us. Uh, maybe in the future we'll have uh, maybe Discord or another app. But yeah, I, I love to hear from listeners, and if you have uh, some comments about the show, some things that you like to add, questions you want us to ask, yeah mb-matters.com send them away yeah where years ago we in radio we used to say you know send in your letters right send in your letters snail mail snail mail but now it's immediate you can write an email quickly and uh, hopefully get an answer quickly but uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us this week Yes, I did say that we're going to wrap up, so we should do this. Uh, uh, just one note about Patreon. The link to go to for Patreon is patreon.com backslash mindbodymatters. Well, Mind Body Matters is a great media podcast and produced by Reefer Communications. And we're going to have another episode very soon. But meanwhile, be kind to yourself. 
And most importantly, be well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends.